Thanks for listening to the River in the Hills weekly sermon. We hope you enjoy this message by Sloan Adams. For more about this podcast and other resources, visit our website at www.riverinthehills.com. And honored uh, to get to be a son of this house um, and a son uh, of a man and a woman who have dedicated their lives to serving this house. Um, And so it's a tremendous honor and privilege uh, to be standing in front of you. Uh, Today, uh, this Sunday before the Tuesday, where we get to determine our government uh, for the next couple of years, Uh, the title of my message, as you can see on the screen, is Build Back Biblical. (laughs) Build Back Biblical. Our current president ran on the uh, platform of Build Back Better, and I would submit to you that the only way to build back better is to build back biblical. And so that's what we're going to be talking about this morning. This coming Tuesday is a big day for our nation. How many of y'all know this is a big day for us? And the Bible unequivocally commands us to care about where we live. My hope is that from today's message, you will be inspired again to participate in the civic process of our nation because our Savior did not come to establish compartmentalized Christianity, but comprehensive Christianity. Every part of your life should be submitted to the Lordship of Jesus, and that includes what you do in the ballot box. Kids, I know you can't vote yet if you're under the age of 18, But parents, can I encourage you, bring your kids with you to the voting center because they need to see you care enough about your nation if you expect them to do it when they are your age. Jeremiah 29.7 says this, and work, everybody say work, Work. for the peace and prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, for its welfare will determine your welfare. Love that picture of that eagle on there. It was my own personal... Since I got to make the slides, I got to take creative license in the slides. The word used for work in this passage is the Hebrew word for require or demand. So a better way to read that verse would be, and demand the peace and the prosperity of the city where I sent you into exile. This word for work was first used in Scripture in Genesis 9, verse 5, where God says to Noah, and I will require the blood of anyone who takes another person's life. If a wild animal kills a person, it must die. And anyone who murders a fellow human must die. This is part of the covenant that God makes with Noah after the worldwide floodwaters recede, and he has effectively hit the reset button on humanity. How many of you guys know the first thing you do after you reset something in your life that you say is a priority is going to indicate to you what is most important? I don't know why it is this way, but whenever I sign back up again to go to the gym, my workout app is like, you should hit legs. I don't know why that is, and I regret it for the next three to four days following that event. But in this passage, the very same word that God uses here to describe how seriously he takes the shedding of human blood 
after hitting the reset button on humanity, he now uses in Jeremiah 29.7 to instruct his people in the way that they should carry themselves in the nation where he is sending them into exile. So even here, God himself is saying, yes, pray to me about blessing and prospering the place where we live. But we, everybody say we, we also must take forceful, intentional action in order to demand that blessing to take place. At the risk of overstating the obvious, I am not calling for violence. I just, in case Media Matters gets a hold of this, I am not calling for violence. I am calling for the forceful, intentional act of taking yourself to a polling center and voting in this election. That is what I am talking about. 2 Timothy 2.1, a verse we quote here regularly and have prayed out of, and as I was driving into church this morning, I heard them praying in the prayer room in Kansas City out of this passage. 2 Timothy 2.1 says this, I urge you, first of all, to pray for all people. Ask God to help them intercede on their behalf and give thanks for them. Pray this way for kings and all who are in authority so that we can live peaceful and quiet lives marked by godliness and dignity. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants everyone to be saved and to understand the truth. Guys, the most important thing we as believers can do is preach the gospel. The second most important thing is to make sure that we can continue to do the first thing. We pray for those who are in authority currently, regardless of whether or not we agree with their policies. But as the citizens or co-rulers here in America, everybody knows that the Constitution begins with these three words, we the people, we have been given not just the right, but the responsibility to determine what kind of government we want to have. The Greeks, from whom we borrowed this idea of the citizen, had the belief that citizenship carries with it the idea or the notion of the individual state, in other words, the place where you live, as a thing with boundaries, which are currently being violated, a history, and a power of decision. But number two, the idea that its inhabitants would participate in its life as joint proprietors. In other words, that you would take ownership of the place that you live and not abdicate or outsource authority and ownership to someone else. That is what a democracy is. We are not a democracy. We are a constitutional representative republic. And we elect men and women who go to our state, local, and federal offices, and we expect them to represent our wishes for the nation. That is what the idea of a citizen is. You are a co-ruler. When it talks about in 2 Timothy 2.1 to pray for your leaders in a real way, the Apostle Paul is saying pray for yourself because you are in authority. Noah Webster's 1828 dictionary, which I love along with my mother and father, defines citizen as this. In the United States, a person native or naturalized, in other words, one who was born here or who has become a citizen themselves, who has the privilege of exercising the elective franchise to vote or the qualifications which enable him to vote for rulers and to purchase and hold real estate. 
And then I lo- this is in the definition. If the citizens of the United States should not be free and happy, the fault will be entirely their own. It's what our founding fathers thought. So currently, if you are not free and happy with what's going on in our country, can I submit to you the fault? You need look no further than your mirror. And our nation should do the same. We see all throughout Scripture men and women who influenced secular government for God's purposes. Let's start in Genesis with Joseph. He served as the prime minister in the pagan nation of Egypt. He listened to Pharaoh describe his two dreams, and then he gave him the interpretation. And then he goes beyond giving an interpretation to making suggestions to the most powerful man in the earth at the time. He tells Pharaoh, one, you should appoint an intelligent and wise man to oversee the land and its harvest. Then you should give this man several commissioners who would be over different parts of the land and then take one-fifth of each harvest for Pharaoh for the next seven years. And thirdly, all of this food must be put into storage to use when the years of famine arrive. God moved Pharaoh to choose Joseph to fill this role. Joseph's demeanor, his skill at interpreting dreams, and his wisdom in finding a solution to the problem of the famine all impressed Pharaoh and convinced him that Joseph was the man for the job. Thirteen years before, his brothers had stripped him of his special robe, but now Pharaoh gave him a robe of far greater significance. And the signet ring and the gold chain he received were symbols of Joseph's authority as second in command in Egypt. All right, let's talk about Daniel. Daniel served as an advisor to many pagan kings in Babylon. Scholars believe that Daniel was 15 years old in the year 605 when he was taken to Babylon. And he would have been 83 when he received the revelations that are recorded in Daniel 10 through 12. So he lived a long life serving in government. When he was reading the prophecy of Jeremiah, Daniel understood God's plan for the Jews was to return to their land and to rebuild the temple and the city. And he, had lo- he lived long enough to see the prophecy fulfilled. During Daniel's long life, he had the opportunity to witness to Nebuchadnezzar, Darius, Belshazzar, and Cyrus, as well as to many of the court officers who came and went. Okay, how about Esther? Esther served as queen to a pagan king, Xerxes, and her cousin, Mordecai, held an official position in government and sat at the king's gate. This is how he had access to inside information. In fact, if I can submit to you, Mordecai was the very first insider in all of history. (laughs) Keep in mind that both Mordecai and Esther were in Babylon after Cyrus had already given the Jews permission to return home. So they, they had the choice to go home and they chose to stay and influence secular government. Nehemiah was a cupbearer to the Persian king Artaxerxes. Now, for those of you wondering, a cupbearer was much more than our modern idea of a butler. It was a position of great responsibility and privilege. At each meal, he tested the king's wine to make sure it wasn't poisoned. A man who stood that close to the king in public had to be handsome, cultured, 
knowledgeable in court procedures and able to converse with the king and advise him if asked. Because he had access to the king, the cupbearer was a man of great influence, which he could use for good or for evil. For nearly a century, the Jewish remnant had been back in their own land, and Nehemiah could have joined them, but he chose to remain in the palace. Now, eventually, he does go back to Jerusalem to encourage and rebuild the desolate remnant, but this is only after he served in the Persian government. So for those of you who are standing here and say, God, Sloan, I really don't think it's my place to get in. Like, we're just passing through. Like, we're citizens of heaven, you know, and all of this stuff. I would submit to you, you cannot ignore the examples of these five individuals, and there are countless more throughout Scripture. You cannot ignore them. Otherwise, you might as well throw your entire Bible out. Ultimately, if you leave here today with nothing else, my hope is that you will remember this phrase. Voting is not political. It is biblical. Voting is not political. It is biblical. In much the same way that we pray in order to impact the happenings in the supernatural, we vote because we desire to impact what takes place in the natural. Praying for righteousness in our nation and then not using the power we've been given by our founders in the Constitution to vote would be like expressing a desire for muscles but never working out. It is not only foolish, it is self-defeating. Therefore, we cannot pray for good government and then hope God will just take over for us. He will not do things that enable our inactivity or our disobedience. John Wesley once said, God does nothing except in response to believing prayer. I will submit that America will not have righteous leadership except in response to believers who vote. So how do you vote? Not the process of voting, but what are the values? Well, we vote according to the, pro- the following principles. Number one, God created man and woman. This speaks to an unshakable biological reality. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created human beings in his own image, in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. What are those next three words? Male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and govern it. Reign over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Do you guys notice that the idea for government follows the idea of man and woman? Genesis 5.2 says, He created them what? Male and female. And he blessed them and called them human. There is only one race, and it is the human race. And much to some, some chagrin, if you want to argue with me and say, well, Sloan, that's Old Testament. Jesus, in Matthew 19, verse 1, it says, When Jesus had finished saying these things, he left Galilee and went down to the region of Judea, east of the Jordan River. Large crowds followed him there, and he healed their sick. Some Pharisees came and tried to trap him with this question. Just never a good idea. If you've read the Gospels, don't try to trap Jesus. Should a man be allowed to divorce his wife for just any reason? Haven't you read the scriptures, Jesus replied? They record that from the beginning... God made them male and female. And he said, This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife, 
and the two are united into one. Since they are no longer two but one, let no one split apart what God has joined together. In these passages, God is establishing the fundamental biological reality of there being only two genders. Sex and gender are interchangeable in Scripture, just so we're clear on that. He's also establishing the only acceptable form of marriage, according to God, between one man and one woman. As we learn from Romans chapter 1, when we do not worship God as he is, we open ourselves up to all manner of deception and falsehood. Unfortunately, we have seen society, especially our leaders, federal, state, and local, implement policies that affirm the ideology of there being more than two genders. Not only that, they have brought these ideas into our classrooms and are seeking to perpetuate this demonic teaching onto our children, saying things like, well, children should just be allowed to decide what gender they are, or kids should have the right to have surgery, to irreversibly change who they are, even if it means not letting the parents know. Parents, listen to me. Proverbs twenty-two fifteen is clear. A youngster's heart is filled with foolishness, but physical discipline will drive it far away. My mother quoted this verse to me more times than I care to count. I was spanked and I turned out okay. You do not turn over the decision-making in your home to your child. Their hearts are filled with foolishness. We cannot outsource the acquiring of wisdom for our children to schools, TikTok, Instagram, or the media. If you hand your kid a phone or an iPad and you expect them to learn morality, you might as well just abdicate your role as parent. They are your responsibility. Your son and your daughter are your responsibility. End of story. The Bible says that children are a gift from the Lord. How upset would you be as a parent if you gave a gift to your child and they said, no, thank you? Well, we do that as parents and our nation is guilty of this because parents have done this for decades. It is time for the church to stand up and call parents to who they are supposed to be. Women have done a good job of this, but I'm specifically speaking to the men. It is time for us to stand up and be the priests and heads of our home. An entire generation, because of schools and social media and the media itself, an entire generation is currently being discipled by demons instead of by believing parents who not only stand up for their kids, but for the children of our nation. Jesus himself said in Luke 17, verse 2, it would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. Allowing children to violate the image of God that they carry is digging the path for children to fall into sin instead of letting the children come to Jesus like it talks about in Matthew 19, verse 14. Again, voting is not political. It is biblical. Secondly, Life begins at conception. This speaks to the uncompromising value of life. In the pro-life movement, we've all heard of the passage in Psalm 139, 14 about being fearfully and wonderfully made. But let me take you to two passages in the New Testament and show you how God 
through the writings of Luke, who is himself a doctor, you know, we've been taught we need to trust the science, views the issue of when life begins. Luke 1.39, a few days later, Mary hurried to the hill country of Judea, to the town where Zechariah lived. She entered the house and greeted Elizabeth. At the sound of Mary's greeting, Elizabeth's child leapt within her, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Elizabeth gave a glad cry and exclaimed to Mary, God has blessed you above all women, and your child is blessed. Why am I so honored that the mother of my Lord should visit me? When I heard your greeting, the baby in my womb jumped for joy. You are blessed because you believe that the Lord would do what he said. In Luke chapter 2, beginning in verse 12, it says, This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. In verse 41 and 42, or 44, excuse me, of Luke chapter 1, speaking of the unborn John the Baptist, Luke uses the Greek word brephos to describe the child in the womb. But in the next chapter, when he writes of the angels speaking to the shepherds about where they would find the born babe Jesus, post-birth, what word does he use? That's right, the same word, brephos. The same exact words to describe both the born and the unborn. Jesus is both the greatest former fetus and man to have ever lived. God sees no distinction between them. Even in the Old Testament, when God speaks to the prophet Jeremiah, he tells him, I knew you before I formed you in your mother's womb. Before you, before you were born, I set you apart and appointed you as my prophet to the nations. That word for know is the Hebrew word yada, and it means to know by observing or reflecting. The first usage of this word appears in Genesis 8.11, where Noah knew that the waters had abated from the flood as a result of seeing the freshly picked olive leaf in the dove's mouth. He knew it, not because he saw it, but because he saw the leaf. He knew it only after observing and thinking about what he had seen. The argument by those on the pro-choice, or as I like to call it, pro-death side, is that a woman should have a right to kill the fetus because it's not a baby yet. However, this word shows that much like in Horton Hears a Who, just because you cannot see or hear something doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Even the very argument of my body, my choice, is completely satanic and carries the spirit of the Antichrist because it is a perversion of Jesus' very words at the Last Supper. He didn't say, my body, my choice. He said, my body, broken for you. And for those who struggle with the issue of using abortion to protect the life of a mother, let me defer to pro-life advocate Seth Gruber. How often is abortion medically necessary to save the life of a mother? Right, good question. Thank you, Charlie. It actually never is. And I meet pro-lifers a lot of the time who, who actually parrot the pro-abortion talking points on this. This actually may be, Charlie, the, the most successful 
propaganda weaving into the American conscious and pro-life consciousness from the other side that I've seen in recent memory, such that you have pro-life pastors saying, I, I oppose abortion except when the mother's going to die. Here's the thing. If, if in these super, super minority rare cases where if the pregnancy continues, mom will die, the solution is not abortion. The solution is you induce early labor with Pitocin or you perform a cesarean section. And guess what? That's safer for mom than the abortion would be. Now, what do we hear? What do we hear all the time, Charlie? Um, no, um, Cecile, uh, Cecile Richards, the former president of Planned Parenthood, told me that, um, that abortion is as safe as taking Tylenol. And, and I've been told, follow the science, it's, it's actually the safest medical procedure in modern medicine. This is what we hear from the abortion industrial complex. Uh, let me, let, I, I could go into the moral argument. Let, let me just cite Planned Parenthood for you. How about that? In a 1963 booklet that actually uh, we have a scan of, so maybe I'll send it to Charlie sometime on the show. In a 1963 Planned Parenthood booklet, they admitted what I just said. They said, abortion ends the life of a baby after it has already begun. And it is dangerous to your life and health. Planned Parenthood said that in a 1963 booklet. John 10.10 says, the the thief's purpose is to steal, kill, and destroy. My purpose is to give them a rich and satisfying life. Jesus here is giving the most black and white position on the issue. He is saying, if it affirms and protects life, then I am in it. If it does anything else, it is of the devil. Before I move on, I don't want to take for granted that there may be men and women who have gone through with having an abortion here today or who might be listening to this later. Let me just say this. It is not the unforgivable sin. There is mercy found in the blood of Jesus, which can take away all the shame and the after effects of your decision. Do not leave here today without receiving the free gift of his forgiveness, given through the shedding of his blood. His mercy triumphs over judgment, and we here at River in the Hills, would love to pray with you and to come alongside you as you come to him. Again, voting is not political, it's biblical. Thirdly, we vote in accordance with this principle. Churches must stay open at all costs. This speaks to the church's importance and how the government crushed the church over the last couple of years. Hebrews 10.25, And let us not neglect our meeting together, as some people do, but encourage one another, especially now that the day of his return is drawing near. The word for neglect in this passage in Hebrews carries the meaning of leaving something behind in some place. During 2020, many left behind the value of meeting together, choosing instead the value of safety, something I could never envision our founders, much less the apostles espousing. As Mike Failauer said here a few months ago, Could you hear them saying something like, out of an abundance of safety? I couldn't. In fact, they said the opposite. Look on their threats and give us boldness. Matthew 16, 18 said, Jesus is speaking to his disciples, specifically to Peter, and he says, Now I say to you that you are Peter, which means rock, and upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. He could have used any Greek word for church there. 
He used the Greek word ekklesia. It was a secular term, and it came from two Greek words, ek meaning out of, and klesis meaning a calling, so a calling out of. It was used among the Greeks to describe a body of citizens gathered to discuss the affairs of the state. In the Greek Old Testament, or the Septuagint, it is used to designate the gathering of Israel summoned for any definite purpose, or a gathering regarded as representative of the whole nation. Does this sound at all familiar? When we vote, we are doing the very thing that this word entails, calling out men and women from the populace to represent the whole nation. In 2020, some state governments made a decision to classify churches as non-essential. Meanwhile, in these same states, abortion clinics, cannabis dispensaries, liquor stores, and strip clubs were allowed to remain open. What this tells us is what the government in these states deemed as important. What the government as voted on by the people deemed important. Thankfully, here in Texas, churches were protected and declared essential. As I said in a message I gave back in December of 2021, the future of the church is not online. Though I am grateful for the advent of technology that allowed us to continue to stay connected during the lockdowns of 2020 and 2021. By the way, we are not in the position we are in in this country because of the pandemic. We are in the position we are in because of the lockdowns that our government put in place. This is not God's idea for how we should meet in advance of his son return. Speaking of online, I am grateful to attend a church. I'm looking at three men that made the choice to value individual liberty that people have been given by God, and we were among the first to reopen. I am also grateful, yeah, please. I am also grateful to a man like Mike Faylauer who took it upon himself to get involved, not just as a pastor, but as a citizen to get involved in the governmental sphere. God gave him the wisdom for the phased reopening idea that allowed so many churches in our state to welcome people through their doors while other states kept their churches closed. In spite of those measures in states like California, and I know some of you have come from there, men like John MacArthur, Rob McCoy, and others ignored the tyrannical edicts of the governors and mayors of their states and were obedient to the call of God to gather and build the church. As Benjamin Franklin once said, Rebellion to tyrants is obedience to God. Echoing the words of Peter and the other apostles in the book of Acts, verse, chapter 5, verse 28, we must obey God rather than human beings. When tyrants are empowered, church, we must obey God rather than them. But when we have the opportunity to replace them with righteous men and women, obedience to God looks like letting our voice be heard at the polls and using our right to vote to elect those who will enact and uphold righteous laws. Voting is not political. It is biblical. If I could have the worship team come up. Guys, I want every single person of voting age to have a fulfilled ballot on Tuesday. I am not going to tell you what party to vote for, but I am going to ask you to pray and to fast 
before you make that decision of which set of person has the set of policies. Vote for policies over people and personalities that are most in alignment with the natural law and biblical truth, as I've just shown. I don't want a single person not to fill out a ballot. And whatever I've just said leads you towards or to, then so be it. Vote on Tuesday, yes. But also reach out to your friends and to your family to do the same. Who are the 10 to 20 people that you can text or call? Ask them, what are your plans for Tuesday? Do I need to come pick you up? We can go together. It is not enough to just do what I'm supposed to do. We have to rally together for this. Make a plan for how, where, and when to vote. Get up early if you need to. Those of you who are able-bodied, if you can give up your place in line to the mother who's in a hurry or the elderly who cannot stand in a long line, do so. Be a person who is solution-minded in your polling center, not problem-focused. Ask the Holy Spirit what he's doing in the room. Wouldn't it be just like the Lord to give you a word of knowledge for the person you're standing in line next to? Guess what? You don't need a cell phone to hear that. As much as it's in with, within our power, guys, let's make sure that every person can and does vote. To close, I'd like to leave you with the words of the Reverend John Witherspoon, a member of our Continental Congress that he delivered on May 17th of 1776 in a message that he gave during a day of fasting that was called for by our Congress. Oh, for the day when our Congress calls for days of fasting and prayer. Listen to these words. Upon the whole, I beseech you to make a wise improvement of the present threatening aspect of public affairs and to remember that your duty to God, to your country, to your families, and to yourselves is the same. True religion is nothing else but an inward temper and outward conduct suited to your state in circumstances, in providence at any time. And as peace with God and conformity to him adds to the sweetness of created comforts while we possess them, so in times of difficulty and trial, it is in the man of piety and inward principle that we may expect to find the uncorrupted patriot, the useful citizen, and the invincible soldier. God grant that in America, true religion and civil liberty may be inseparable and that the unjust attempts to destroy the one may in the issue tend to the support and the establishment of both. Would you stand? My fellow Americans, and more importantly, my fellow citizens of the kingdom of heaven, let us do all we can to preserve the blessing of liberty that we have been given by God himself. God bless you, and God bless these United States of America. Let's pray. Father, King of the universe, 
you who sit enthroned above the circle of the earth. We lift our nation to you. We lift our state to you. We lift Austin and Lakeway before you. And God, we ask that when the votes are tallied, righteousness and justice would prevail. God, we are asking for those who do not support righteousness and justice to either A, be removed, or B, not get elected in the first place. Only righteousness and only justice. God, would you be honored and glorified by our vote and by our conduct. God, we ask that you would bless those who are running on a platform of righteousness and justice according to your law, not according to man's ideas, but according to your ideas. Your ways are not our ways and your thoughts are not our thoughts. And so for those who have espoused your values and your principles, God, I am asking that you would overcome any and all obstacles that stand in their way to elected office and God, that they would be put in place. God, would you shock us with how good you are by installing righteous leaders. And God, we commit that our job will not be done because people get put in office. We commit to pray and to fast for good government in our nation, regardless of the outcome on Tuesday. Would you be honored and glorified in our country? And would you be king? Your word says that of your government, the increase of your government will know no end. Would you see fit to have our government as part of the increase of yours on Tuesday? We love you and we bless you and we thank you for the privilege it is to live in these great United States of America. We do not take it lightly. Pray all these things in Jesus' name. Everyone said. Guys, I know I was firm. But this is something to get firm about. Our nation matters. God first. And that's why the Lord put this on my heart. So if I could have our prayer teams come forward, I'm going to turn it over to Pastor Nate. Guys, I really appreciate you listening. I love you. Thanks for listening to the weekly sermon. To download the notes and slides for this message, visit our website, riverinthehills.com. If you would like to partner with us in moving God's heart and changing the world, please subscribe to our podcast, leave a review, and share this episode with a friend.